Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. We've been speaking on contenting ourselves with serving Jesus Christ, following Him and letting Him carry our heavy burdens. And we've talked about the burden of fear. Our subject was fear not. We've talked about the burden of guilt. Our subject was sin not. And we've talked about the burden of worry and anxiety. Our subject was fret not. This morning, our subject is weep not. As we talk about relief that God provides for the burden of grief and loss. And I want to read from John chapter 11, beginning in the 17th verse. Then when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. That's about a mile and three quarters. And many of the Jews came to Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, Mary arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit, and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? This is one of, if not the most dramatic accounts in the personal ministry of the Lord Jesus. Today we're seeking relief in the Lord Jesus Christ for the heavy burden of grief and loss. Now this is the familiar account of Jesus' closeness and intimacy with a little family of three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, their brother, who lived in a town called Bethany, which was, again, about two miles, just shy of two miles 
east of Jerusalem. And Jesus was especially close to this little family in Bethany. There are at least two other occasions besides this one in the four Gospels where Jesus appears in their home. Luke chapter 10, he has a meal in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Do you remember that's the occasion in which Martha was frazzled? She burst into the room because Mary was sitting there visiting with Jesus, listening to Jesus. Martha burst in and she basically scolded Mary and in an underhanded way, roundabout way, she scolded Jesus as well for allowing Mary to sit passively while Martha's in there slaving away at the kitchen. That was in their home. And then there's another occasion in the next chapter, John chapter 12, where Jesus is in their home and Mary takes an alabaster box of ointment and she breaks this precious treasure and anoints the body of Jesus and some of the disciples consider it to be a terrible waste. But Jesus said against the day of my burying, hath she done this? So he was especially close to this little family. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Can you imagine what it must have been like to have Jesus visit your home? But on this occasion, Jesus has escaped from the growing tensions concerning him in Judea for a kind of retreat in a place called Bethabara, or some scholars call it Bethany beyond Jordan, which was some 70 miles north of Jerusalem in Bethany, just at the base, if you please, of the Sea of Galilee. So he's gone away because his life was in danger. The tension is growing. The authorities are seeking to entrap him and imprison him and to kill him. And Jesus has made his getaway for a little retreat. You read about this at the end of the previous chapter, John chapter 10, verse 40. It says, he went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at the first baptized if you go back to John 1.28 in this same book, you'll see that John first baptized at a place called Bethabara, which means the place of a ford. And this was a little stream that fed the Jordan River, and there was much water there, and uh, John baptized there. John also baptized at Enon and Salem, as you read in the third chapter of John's Gospel, Several places along the Jordan River, John performed his baptisms. But the place he baptized at first, as John 10.40 says, where Jesus and his disciples are now gathered in this kind of retreat, is Bethabara, which was again about 70 miles north, actually northeast, just on the other side of the Jordan River of Jerusalem and Bethany. Now, a day's journey was about 30 miles. So 70 miles away would be at least two days journey. Keep that thought in mind. Because the Lord Jesus is going to get a message on this occasion that Lazarus, his dear friend down at Bethany, is near death. And it's going to take him a little while to make the journey down there. I want you to notice, first of all, the circumstances of this narrative. We go back to verse 1 in John chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. 
I've always found this verse to be very tender. Lord, the one that you love is sick. You know, I've often prayed that. When one of our loved ones was ill, Lord, the one that you love is sick. Isn't it special to think of the fact that even though I'm sick, the Lord still loves me? And to appeal to him, Lord, the sister that you love is sick. The brother that you love is sick is a good way to pray. That's the message they sent to Jesus. Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now, I doubt this was just a head cold. In fact, it's a very serious illness. So serious that they're afraid for his life. And they've sent to Jesus with the hope that Jesus will be forthcoming. But it says in verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of Man might be glorified thereby. And perhaps you say at this moment that this is one of those episodes where Jesus exhibits his lack of omniscience, because Lazarus did in fact die. Why then would Jesus say this sickness is not unto death? Did Jesus make a mistake? Did Jesus underestimate the severity of the illness? I suggest that the answer to that question is no, Jesus is omniscient. He's still God, even though he's truly man, he's still truly God manifest in the flesh. And the omniscience of Jesus is a wonderful theme that surfaces several times as you study through the four Gospels. He knew what was in man. He knew all men. He knew who would betray him. You see, Jesus knows all things. So when he said this sickness is not unto death, we need to understand that he is interpreting the word death differently than we do. The word death in this verse speaks in the ultimate sense. And the reason that Jesus said this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby, is because he knew that Lazarus' illness had another purpose for the glory of God, and Jesus intended to raise Lazarus from physical death. Now, Jesus loved Martha, we read in verse 5, and her sister and Lazarus. Now, for the second time, we're told in this narrative that Jesus loved this little family. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he immediately left and went to Bethany. Is that what the text says? No, that's not what it says. It's interesting to me that the text begins by saying Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and Lazarus. And when he heard that Lazarus was sick, it doesn't say that he immediately left on a trip to Bethany. But it says he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Has the Lord ever, when you felt like you were at a moment of crisis, delayed to answer your prayers? You say, well, how does the fact that Jesus delayed to go down to Bethany, he stayed two more days in this retreat at Bethabara, how does that give evidence of the love of Jesus for this little family? And I suggest, my beloved, that Jesus is about to do something for them that they never dreamed was possible. Jesus still cares, even though the circumstances of our lives may argue against it. I want you to remember, Jesus still loves you and still loves me, even though it may appear that he hasn't answered our prayers. He abode two more days still in the same place where he was. 
Then after that, verse 7 says, he said to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. And his disciples put the brakes on. They said unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again. What they're asking is, have you forgotten that the reason we left there is because your life was in mortal danger? That's why we've traveled 70 miles north, and to go back there is to risk your own life. But Jesus explains, are there not 12 hours in the day? Now here we learn that he defines the word day differently than we do. How many hours are there in a day? You say 24. Jesus said there are 12. So how is he thinking of the word day here? He's thinking of the daylight, right? There are 12 hours of light, 12 hours of darkness that makes a full day. The evening and the morning were the first day, you see. So you have darkness and you have light. And Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? We're going back to Jerusalem. He said, if, if any man walk in the day, that is in the daylight, he stumbleth not because he seeth the light of this world. Now this may have a deeper spiritual meaning, but I think in the context, at least what it means is this. Master, you're going back to Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, we're going back in the daylight. And there's no reason for you to worry, but if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth because there's no light in him. Jesus is saying to them that right now it's uh, safe to go back. Right now, nobody's going to harm me as long as it's the light of day. Now again, there may be a deeper spiritual message in those verses. But he's answering his disciples' objection. Lord, we don't need to go back there because your life is in mortal danger. And then Jesus says, yes, we need to go back for this reason. Verse 11, he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Now here we learn that he's defining the word sleep differently than we ordinarily do. In this entire passage, he's defined the word death differently than what we might think it means. He's defined the word day in a special and particular way, and he defines the word sleep. Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, and I go to awake him out of sleep. And the disciples responded, Lord, if he sleeps, he shall do well. It's a good thing to rest. There's no reason to worry about him being asleep. We don't need to go to wake him from his rest. But Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said unto them plainly, verse 14 says, Lazarus is dead. Now that's pretty blunt. That's pretty direct, but Lazarus' physical life has expired. And listen to this surprising verse, verse 15. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent that you may believe. Now, there's a greater purpose in this. It will give you greater understanding of my identity as the Son of God. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, which means the twin said unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. If he's going to go back to Jerusalem and be killed, then let's all go and make the ultimate sacrifice with him. I admire Thomas's enthusiasm on this occasion. Those are the circumstances of this narrative. And when Jesus came, says verse 17, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now remember, Jesus is two days north of Bethany, a two days journey, 70 miles. 
A one day's journey was about 50 kilometers or 30 miles. He's 70 miles away, so it's going to take two hard days of walking to get from Bethabara back down to Bethany near Jerusalem. And he stayed there for two days after he gets the message. So two days delay plus two days travel. By the time he gets there, if he would have come immediately, he still probably would have encountered a deceased Lazarus. But he gets there and he finds that he's been deceased for four days already. Now I want you to notice the heavy burden of grief beginning in the 18th verse. Now Bethany was nigh to Jerusalem about 15 furlongs off and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. How wonderful it is to have friends and when you're at a time of grief to be surrounded by loved ones, family, friends, acquaintances. They all come to your side and rally around you. That is a great blessing. Many people have expressed to me over the years, I didn't know that we were so loved. And you don't, often don't realize how much other people love you until you face the loss of a loved one. And on this occasion, many of the Jews come out of Jerusalem and travel the couple of miles to Bethany just to minister to Martha and Mary and to comfort them concerning their brother. They know that they're grief-stricken. You know, sometimes the best thing you can do when somebody is grieving is just be with them. You say, I don't know what to say. Well, just uh, be there and say, I love you. Just give them a hug. Just help them with what needs to be done. Just provide assistance. That often sends a more powerful message than a very elaborate speech. You know, Job's three miserable comforters were of greater help to Job those seven days they remained silent than they were when they opened their mouth and tried to explain what was happening to him. And sometimes the best way to show love is just to be there. Somebody once said that 80% of success in ministry is just showing up. When somebody's in the hospital, just show up. When somebody is in need, you show up. When the church is meeting, you show up. And I think there's probably some truth to that. And my beloved, the way that you show love to people in need is just being there for them. Just being there. What is grief? Well, grief might be defined as a response of inward desolation arising from a love that has been lost. Whether that loss has to do with a person that is dear to your heart or whether it has to do with something that you're affectionate toward, like a longtime family pet, or maybe the loss of a family heirloom or precious memory in a house fire. Grief is the inevitable result of dealing with something that you've lost that was loved. Now, the key word in this definition is the word love. J.I. Packer writes, We lavish care and affection on what we love and those whom we love. And when we lose the beloved, the shock, the hurt, the sense of being hollowed out and crushed, the haunting, taunting memory of better days, the feeling of unreality and weakness and hopelessness and the lack of power to think and plan for the new situation can be devastating. That's what grief is. And of all the different forms of grief, bereavement, is likely the most painful. Have you ever noticed the etymology of the word bereave? That is the grief of death. You might lose a 
house or memories in a house fire and you say, I'm grieving over that loss. But to lose a person, to be bereaved, is even more potent than to lose a possession. Have you ever noticed the etymology of that word bereave? And by the way, we don't use the word that much anymore. The verb reave was once a very popular expression of the Old English. The word meant to break or to tear. We use the word rift instead today, a, a break or a tear. There's a rift in the valley. There's a rift in my garment. But it comes from the same root. The, the English verb reave meant to break or to tear. And you know the person who is experiencing the grief of bereavement does indeed feel that his or her heart has been broken in half, torn in two. Some precious object of affection has been forcibly torn away, leaving the victim feeling broken and alone. Again, the theologian J.I. Packer writes, grief is more draining and harrowing than we ever expected it to be. All our attempts to put it into words are inadequate. At the very time when grief and our verbalizing of it brings us to tears, we find ourselves feeling that it is really too deep for tears and too agonizing for words. As we struggle with the ache of loss, the grip of our grief imposes a kind of relational paralysis, a sense that no one, however sympathetic and supportive in intention, can share what we're feeling. And it would be a betrayal of our love for the lost one to pretend otherwise. So we grieve alone. And the agony is unbelievable. The loneliness of grief is one of the worst and most draining things about it. The capacity for enterprise and initiative melts and dissolves away. A half-numb apathy, frequently alternating with bouts of tears, sets in. The first paragraph of C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed, written within a month of bereavement after his wife died, describes grief as feeling like fear. Quote, Lewis says, grief is the same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times, Lewis says it feels like being concussed, having a concussion. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says. And no one, says Lewis, ever told me about the laziness of grief. Except at my job, where the machine seems to run on much as usual, I loathe the slightest effort. Even shaving is a burden to me. Such is the brokenness felt in grief. That's what we see here in the town of Bethany as Mary and Martha are surrounded by friends who've come to comfort them concerning their brother. Now notice verse 20 in our text. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Do you hear disappointment in these words? I do. Somebody says, well, I find it hard to believe that Martha would complain that she was disappointed in Jesus. But remember, she's grief-stricken. And she had sent the message to Jesus with high hopes that because he did love Lazarus, he whom thou lovest is sick, Jesus, you're the only one I know to turn to. And the fact that he was 
four days late arriving on the scene. It's hard for her to conceal her mild disappointment. Lord, if thou hadst just been here, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. You could have done something about it. Now, obviously, she seems to be suggesting that it's too late now. The next verse is going to show us that she still has confidence in God, but I doubt she could frame the degree to which there might still be hope, though she expresses confidence and faith and hope in Jesus in verse 22. I doubt that she really expects him to be resurrected from the dead. He's deceased now, and she's disappointed at how it all happened. You know, I've known few cases in pastoral ministry in which someone passed away that there weren't some disappointment. Oh, if we had just known earlier. If we had just applied this therapy sooner. Lord, I tried to pray. Lord, I really believed that you would heal my loved one and it didn't work out like that. And there is a little disappointment. Lord, why is my loved one now gone? Do you hear that in Martha's words? I do. Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother would not have died. The disappointment of grief. Disappointment's an emotion that arises when your hopes are unfulfilled, your expectations are foiled and frustrated. And it's interesting to me that Mary, in verses 27 to 32, expresses the very same thought in the very same words. You know, when Martha had had her visit with Jesus, she goes back to the house, is verse 28, and she called Mary, her sister, secretly, Mary, come here. And she whispers in her ear, the master is come and calleth for thee. And Mary, whenever she heard that, got up quickly and rushed out of the house so abruptly that the comforters who were around her wondered what was happening. And they came to this conclusion, she must be going to the grave to weep there. But Mary was coming out to see Jesus. Verse 32 says, when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet and listened to the words that she spoke, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Isn't that verbatim what Martha just said? How would Mary say the very same thing Martha had said unless they had gotten together and said, you know, if Jesus had just been here, Lazarus would still be alive. And they had shared their disappointment with each other. Now, they're not angry at Jesus. They're just, their expectations their hopes have not been fulfilled. Their dreams, they, they have one last hope, one last ditch effort to get help for their brother and it hasn't materialized and they are let down by it. You know, there are many occasions like that in our lives when we will feel a bit disappointed that God didn't, Lord, why didn't you answer my prayer? Lord, I really prayed that you would spare this person. We needed this person. Our family needed him. Our church needed her. And Lord, why didn't you answer my prayers? It's not a blame game. It's not anger at the Lord. It's not shaking a clenched fist of fury in the face of God as if he owes us something. It is just the fact that we trusted and we hoped and we looked to him and it didn't seem to materialize. But here's the thing. The story's not over yet. The story's not over yet. Remember, you think and I think 
that right now matters forever. I'm telling you, dear friends, the Lord doesn't get in as much a hurry as we do. God is seldom as rushed as we are. And in fact, over the long term, he will make all wrongs right. All ills will be made well. The Lord will prevail in the end. And my beloved, may I say the ultimate sense in which that's true is heavenly bliss. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. You'll forget all about your troubles and trials down here. Just one glimpse of him in glory will all the toils of life repay. Do you know people that have really suffered in life? I know people here and there that have had just one trauma after another. Now, you know, I'm not talking about a stumped toe or a skint knee or a fender bender. I'm talking about traumas. I have an aunt who, whose mother burned in a car wreck. And her dad watched her helpless to get her out of the car. She burned to death. And then she had a little child drown, and they couldn't find his body. And it just tore her heart, and she had a grandson that died in a motorcycle accident. Terrible things that would shake a person to the core. You say, I don't think I could take it, Brother Mike. And Lord, I've been asking you to cut me a little slack. Lord, give me peace. Lord, be tender with me. I'm fragile. I'm I don't feel like I can take much more and it seems like another trauma comes down the pike and you say, Brother Goins, I just don't understand it. Well, understand, dear friends, once you get to heaven, just one glimpse of him in glory will more than repay every toil and trial you've had in this life. Do you believe that? I do 120%. Just one glimpse of him in glory will all the toils of life repay. The hymn writer said it like this, our troubles and our trials here will only make us richer there. And the Apostle Paul said by divine inspiration, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. You say, Lord, if you'd been here, the disappointment of grief, the disappointment of grief. Lord, if you'd just been here, Lord, why didn't you hear me? Why didn't you come when we sent for you? Lord, we needed you. He comes and he says, your brother shall rise again. I want you to notice now three biblical gifts that God in his grace gives to his children to help them cope with the grief of bereavement and loss. Number one is the gift of love. And you see that in our passage here. Remember verse 3 where it says, They sent him this message, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. They knew Jesus loved them. They knew he loved Lazarus. They knew he loved them. Verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. There's a reference to his love. Verse 36, At the tomb the Jews said, Behold, how he loved him. Jesus wept, and they said, Behold how he loved him. I want to say that a fresh apprehension of the love of Jesus Christ will provide a relief valve in your heart for the painful pressure that has been built up through grief and sorrow. A fresh grasp of how much Jesus Christ loves you, my friends, 
will bring relief to your grief. We see the love of Christ in this narrative for these heartbroken sisters in these two references to the emotional life of Jesus. Notice in verse 33, it says, When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her. I mean, these people were wailing. The word weeping here does not mean a little trickle rivulet of tears, but it's speaking of somebody who's heartbroken, somebody who is crying out in sorrow. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, she's just sobbing. And the Jews weeping with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now you see that expression again in verse 38. Jesus therefore again groaning in himself. Now that word groaning, I suggest, is a proof or a manifestation of the love of Jesus Christ for his people. And do you know what it means? He groaned in his spirit. The word means to snort with anger. Like a horse might snort with anger. Or a bull might snort through his nostrils at a matador. Jesus Christ is angry at the pain that death caused. On this occasion, in fact, my beloved, he is angry at sin that produced that kind of death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ is not passive, in other words, to the emotions that you and I might feel. Sometimes there is anger in grief, but it shouldn't be anger at God. It should be anger directed at the pain that death has brought into this world. Behold what great sorrow death and sin has brought into this world. And Jesus is angry at it. That, I suggest, shows his love. His anger at sin shows his love for his people. My beloved, have you ever felt the outrage of death, you say, well, it's just a part of life. No, it's not. Life was never intended to include death. Man could have lived forever had he obeyed God. Death is the consequence of sin's entrance into this world. The wages of sin is death. God is not a fan of death. In fact, he hates it, and I hate it too. I mentioned at the graveside of our dear brother this past Friday, that I despise death. You know, I think back in my life, in my pastoral ministry even, for the past 42 years, the Lord's blessed me to pastor three congregations, and I have to tell you, I have officiated at numerous memorial services. And I can't just be clinical like a doctor with a patient, and not all of them are purely clinical. Some of them have hearts to thank the Lord, but uh, I can't just approach pastoral ministry clinically and say, well, let's see, I'm going to do a wedding, then I'm going to do a funeral, then I'm going to preach a sermon, and I'm just going to check the boxes. My heart gets involved. I can't help it. I fall in love with the people. And that's what I love about pastoral ministry. So I'm not just preaching here at this church this Sunday and then at another church the next Sunday, just delivering sermons. Now, I love to preach if God blesses me, but I love interacting with people real flesh and blood people. I love getting to know them and becoming close to them and laughing together and crying together and hugging one another's necks and loving each other. May I say that's what a church is supposed to be? 
A church gives us, my beloved, the opportunity to develop real bonds of love like a family might have for each other. How important it is in this increasingly impersonal age in which we live that we strive and make the contributions necessary to promote and maintain a spirit of brotherly love and affection and warmth in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need it, my beloved. I need it. I need to know that this isn't just a job, that pastoral ministry is not just something that I, it's not my career path, it's my calling in life. And worshiping the Lord is the natural response to his work of grace in our hearts. It's something we need. We are people of like precious faith. We belong to each other. The hymn writer said it like this, blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. Oh, my friends, I love you. I want you to know that. I love you. It hurts me to lose someone from our congregation. It brings grief into my heart. It brings sorrow. There's a pain and there's an anger at the separation that sin has caused in families. To see one of his people mourning over the loss of a life mate or the passing of a father or a mother or a child or a sibling. For it wasn't intended to be like this. What I'm saying is that Jesus does not attempt to distract himself from the pain of death by saying, let's not think about that. Let's go fishing instead. Let's just get away for a while. He doesn't practice some form of detachment. Neither does he employ some psychological diversion to pretend that death really doesn't hurt like a punch in the gut. You know, some people say, well, this is, this is wonderful. Isn't this great? And we have flowers and we have beautiful songs and we say, let's just pretend it's, it's something happy. And my friends, I have to tell you, death is called in the Bible the king of terrors. It's painful. It hurts. And we need to face reality. Let's just be real. Now, there is reason to hope. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But I, I dare say that death is painful. Jesus is angry at it. He groans. He snorts with indignation, a righteous anger. Because death is not natural. You know, atheists are fond of arguing that suffering in this world disqualifies anyone from believing that God is a good God. They'll go into elaborate arguments about the uh, presence of parasites in the universe that feed on healthy tissue and that bring a person down, strong people to their knees, parasites. And they say parasites prove that God is not a good God. No, my friends, to have a parasite, you have to have healthy tissue, right? Let me put it like this. Would you know that a line was crooked if you had never seen a straight line? How would you judge that a line is crooked? You have to have a straight line to compare it to, right? How would anyone know anything about evil if there was no good with which to compare it? God is a good God, and he created the world, but here's where man's rebellion has landed him. It's landed him in the consequences of his sin, which is death. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus is angry at death. And notice not only did Jesus groan the gift of love, but verse 35, Jesus wept. 
we see our compassionate high priest here who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. I want to tell you today, oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. You know, Jesus is not like the Buddha. You ever seen a statue of the Buddha with his legs crossed and his arms crossed and the ghost of a smile, a smirk on his face and the remote expression on his face and his eyes closed. He's not in touch with the real world. Jesus Christ, my beloved, comes to us with eyes filled with tears. Jesus wept. He is engaged. The God of heaven knows what it is to suffer. For he learned obedience through the things that he suffered in this world. And we have a high priest now who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Let me read you this hymn. Jesus wept. Those tears now are over. But his love is still the same. The love that gave birth to those tears is still there, even though he's not weeping today. But his love is still the same. Kinsman, friend, and elder brother is his everlasting name. Jesus wept, and still in glory, he must mark the mourner's tear. He sees every tear that falls from his heavenly throne, loving still to trace the story of the hearts that he strengthened here. Jesus wept, that tear of sorrow is a legacy of love. Man, that's good poetry. That tear of sorrow is a legacy of love. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, he the same doth ever prove. Weeping one, weeping one, Savior, who can love like thee? Weeping one, weeping one, weeping one of Bethany. Jesus wept. I want to say today that Jesus is still a man of sorrows and acquainted with your grief. And remembering that, that our Lord Jesus is not remote and disconnected to human suffering, but he enters into the suffering and he knows he, can, he is touched with the feeling of your infirmities, my beloved, is the gift of love that helps us to cope with the grief of bereavement. Quickly, the gift of truth. Notice verse 11 in our text. Jesus said, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go to awake him out of sleep. Did you know the believer is somebody who knows what happens at death? We're not like the world at large who panic. I just didn't see this coming. Why does this happen? Why? The believer knows exactly what happens at death because the Bible tells us so. What happens when somebody dies? Do they cease to exist? No, the Bible tells us that as soon as the eyes of the body close in death, the eyes of the soul awake in the presence of Jesus Christ at that very instant, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is no intermediate state. The gift of truth. I'm so glad to know the truth. I'm so glad to believe the Bible when it says that death is not the cessation of existence, but it's a departure. You know, I went to Texas to be with my mom on the first anniversary of my dad's passing couple of weeks ago and at the airport it had a big screen that said departures and my flight number was on there and sure enough we departed but a person who assumes that it because we departed I ceased to exist no my friends I didn't cease to exist I didn't depart and then just vaporize 
I departed one place to arrive in another place. You know, there's another screen at the airport that says arrivals. And Paul said, the time of my departure is at hand. I'm leaving here, but I'm not going to cease to exist. I'm just as much alive in heaven. The late Dwight Moody said, when you read in the newspaper that Dwight L. Moody is dead, don't you believe it? I'll be more alive then than I've ever been before. Indeed, my beloved, the believer knows what happens at death. Though our outward man perishes, the inward man is renewed day by day, and when our earthly house of this tabernacle is disassembled, when it's broken down, when it's dissolved, we know that we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, and we earnestly groan, wanting to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. This world is the weeping one. The next world is the carefree and happy one. Yes, my friends, the gift of love, Jesus loves you, and his love doesn't stop. He loves you enough to be touched with your feelings of infirmity, and he's given us his truth, the gift of truth. This helped you to cope with grief. Finally, the gift of hope, the gift of hope. In the conversation with Martha, verses 23 to 27, Jesus said, thy brother shall rise again, and Martha responded, I know he shall rise again at the resurrection and the last day. Now, she's theologically sound. She knows there will be a bodily resurrection at the last day. And she says, I know that he will rise again in the last day. But Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection, present tense. I am the resurrection and the life. And then listen to this. He that believeth in me. Here are two promises to believers. Are you a believer today? Here's something true of every believer. He that believeth in me. Though he were dead, so here's a believer that passes away, yet shall he live. There's a future life awaiting you. For every believer, here's the assurance of the scripture, your life will not end in this world. And then he says, whoso liveth and believeth in me, the person who has not died, but you're alive right now and you're a believer, shall never die. What does that mean? Does that mean that you'll never have a memorial service and have a gravesite in this world? No, it means you shall never die in the ultimate sense. The believer, my friends, will live forever and ever. First, the soul never dies, and the body will be resurrected at the last day when Jesus comes again to be changed, and forever we will be with the Lord. My beloved, that's the gift of hope the Christian response to grief is spelled out in this passage and in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 16, where we learn that hope serves to temper our sorrow. Sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now, he didn't say it's wrong to grieve, but he says, don't let your grief turn into despair, to just be completely hopeless. Let your sorrow be tempered and mitigated by your hope for the future. My beloved, we know that when someone passes on, they go home to be with the Lord. And our hope, our blessed anticipation and prospect is that we shall join them one day in soul and spirit when we die. And then when Jesus comes back, even our bodies will be changed. Body, soul, and spirit. We will all be together. That's our ultimate hope. My beloved, that keeps our sorrow and grief from turning into despair. 
Jesus would have those that trust in him to sorrow not. Luke 8.52 says, On another occasion where someone died, weep not, for the damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, Those who sleep in Jesus. I like the prepositional phrase, sleep in Jesus. God will resurrect and we shall all be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. My beloved, one day Jesus is coming back, and we'll have a family reunion that beats anything you've ever seen in this world. Here's the biblical answer to grief and sorrow. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Oh.